This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Wharton marketing professor Gideon Nave has collaborated with a multinational team of researchers on a project that aimed to replicate the results of 21 social science experiments published in the journals Nature and Science. According to the team's research, only 13 studies found results that supported the original studies. A surprising 38% of these studies failed to produce the same results. The paper is titled Evaluating the Replicability of Social Science Experiments in Nature and Science between 2010 and 2015 and was published in Nature Human Behavior. Gideon is here today to talk about his paper and what it means for the future of research. Thanks for joining us today, Gideon. Thanks, Steve. It's always a pleasure to be here. We rely on research journals to carefully vet what they publish, but other studies like yours have shown that often the results of high-profile studies can't be replicated. Do you think there's a replication crisis, as people are calling this? Yeah, I don't know if I want to use uh, the word crisis to describe it, but we certainly know that uh, many results that are published in top uh, academic journals, including classical results that are parts of textbooks and TED Talks, uh, do not replicate well which means that if you repeat the experiment uh, with exactly the same materials uh, in a different population, sometimes in very similar populations, uh, the results do not uh, seem to hold. Now, uh, top academic journals uh, like Science and Nature, the ones that we used in this uh, study, have an acceptance rate of something like 5% of the papers, so it's not like they don't have uh, papers to select from. Uh, and to my view, uh, the replication rates that we have seen in these uh, literatures is uh, lower than what you would expect. And what kind of experiments did you, did you replicate? Can you describe a couple of them? Yeah, so uh, the experiments that we use, they're social science experiments. These are experiments uh, involving human participants, either online or in laboratory studies. And uh, these experiments, the ones that we selected, also typically have some manipulation uh, meaning that there is an experimental uh, setting where half of the population gets some treatment and another gets another. Um, I'll give you one example. For example, uh, we had a study in which uh, people watched uh, a picture of a statue. Uh, in one condition, it was Rodin's thinker, and in the other one, it was a man throwing discus. Uh, the hypothesis of the researchers was that when you show people Rodin's thinker, it makes them more analytical. Uh, so this was the manipulation. And then they measured people's religious beliefs. And uh, the finding uh, that the pair reported was that when uh, you see uh, or when you look at the picture of Rodin and become more analytical, you are reporting to be less uh, likely to believe in God. Oh, what did you what did you find when you tried to replicate that one? This study specifically did not replicate. Okay. Uh, I think also that the manipulation itself, I'm not sure if looking at the picture of the, the study of Verdun makes you more analytical in the first place. Uh, this is one of the studies that did not replicate. Okay. So you looked at a total of 21 experiments. Uh, what were, you know, what were some of the key takeaways then from the entire uh, project? So there is an ongoing debate uh, in the social sciences on whether uh, there is a problem or not. Uh, and the results of previous uh, studies that failed to replicate a large number of uh, papers published in top journals in psychology and economics uh, were dismissed by some of the researchers. Uh, some said that uh, this is just some kind of uh, statistical uh, uh, fluke that uh, is consistent with everything being replicable. 
maybe that uh, the replications were not sufficiently similar to the previous uh, original findings. So we wanted to overcome some of these limitations and see what is the replicability rates of uh, the studies in the literature that we investigated. Uh, in order to do so, first of all, we sent all of the materials to the original authors and got their endorsement of uh, the experiments. In case we got something wrong, uh, we also got comments from them and there was a joint collaboration with the researchers of the original authors in order to best replicate it as close as possible to the original. Uh, the second thing uh, we did is we also pre-registered the analysis, so everything was uh, open, online, people could go and read what we are doing. Everything was uh, very clear a priori before we run the studies, what will be the analysis that uh, we will use. And the third th uh, thing was uh, using much larger samples than the original. Uh, sample size is a very important factor in an experiment. If you have a large sample, you're more likely to to be able to detect effects that are smaller. We can think of uh, it as if there is some noise in human behavior, and when we average this noise, the more people we average, we get closer to the real average of the population. So the larger your sample is, the better the estimate you have of the effect size, and the better is your capacity to detect effects that are smaller. One finding from the previous research that has been done in uh, replicability is that even if studies do replicate, the effect in the replication seems to be smaller than the original. Um, and we wanted to be ready for that. And in order to do so, we had samples that were sufficiently large to detect effects that are even a half of the original finding. So even in the studies that did replicate, the effect size was much smaller, correct? Yes, so this is, uh, we've seen it in previous studies. Now again, uh, what what happened in this study, because the samples were so large, the studies that failed to replicate actually had essentially a zero effect. Yeah. Uh, but then we could tease apart the studies that don't replicate from the ones that do replicate. Even the studies that did replicate well had on average an effect that was only 75% of the original, which means that the original probably overstated the size of the effect by 33%. Now, um, this is something that one's, one would expect to see if there is a publication bias in the literature. If uh, results that are uh, positive are being published and results that are negative are not being published, you're expected to see an inflation of the effect size, and indeed, this is what we saw in the studies. And this means that if you want to replicate a study, you probably, in the future, want to use a number of participants that is larger than what you had in the original, so you can be sure that you will detect an effect that is smaller than what was reported originally. So you had the collaboration of all of these researchers. Now, what was their reaction to the results? So uh, the reactions were uh, pretty good, I think, overall. Uh, when the replication, I will use now the word crisis, but when this debate started and there were many failures to replicate original findings, uh, Replication was not as normal thing to do, uh, and uh, it was perceived as something that is very hostile by the authors of the original uh, studies. And I have to say, it doesn't feel nice when your own study doesn't replicate, but uh, now, after a few years, it's becoming more and more normal, and we understand that uh, this is something that is happening uh, and can happen to everyone. Uh, and I think there is more acceptance that... Uh, 
that it's okay if your study doesn't replicate. It's not uh, does not mean that you did something bad on purpose. It can happen, and uh, researchers are were quite open to this possibility. Uh, if you look at the media coverage of our studies, uh, one of the authors, actually the one of the uh, Rodan analytical thinking and religious belief study, said that uh, the study was silly in the first place. Um, and uh, along with our paper, there are actually commentaries of uh, the eight authors of the papers that did not replicate well, uh, where they uh, respond to our findings. Uh, in some cases, they find reasons for why it would not replicate. Uh, for example, the population is different. In many times, the uh, subject pool has changed. Uh, if you're studying things like the influence of technology on behavior, then over the few years uh, when... Uh, that that went uh, that went by since uh, the original study and replications. Maybe there could have been changes uh, in our uh, reactions to technology and how technology influences us. So this could, for example, be a reason for why study fails to replicate. Uh, but overall, this is a very constructive uh, process, and we've seen positive responses uh, overall, even among those whose uh, findings could not replicate. By us. Does this sort of failure to replicate occur more often in a social science experiment, say, versus medical ones? Um, and if so, what could be done differently? I don't think that it's more likely to uh, be in the social sciences. I think that one important thing that was driving uh, this uh, replicability movement in the social sciences is that there were better settings to test uh, human subjects either online or using uh, laboratories that were professionally designed to uh, run a large number of participants. Uh, we have to recognize that this is not the case in uh, many other branches of science. Uh, for example, an MRI scan is something that takes two hours to do and costs $400. And you would not expect at the moment to have, uh, even though this is starting to happen too, you would not expect uh, a replicability researcher to run 500 participants in the MRI because it will take forever and cost a lot of money. Uh, and we have to accept that the limitation of a small sample and limited capacity to replicate exists in such uh, cases when we have some boundaries on the amount of participants that we can run. So what kind of changes then would you recommend for uh, for researchers or research in general? Uh, what kinds of implications does your study have? I think that one uh, important th feature of our study that I haven't mentioned yet is uh, that we also, before we ran the studies, we recruited uh, over 200 scientists and have them uh, predict what will happen in the replication. So uh, first of all, we asked them for what do you think what do they think that the probability that the study will replicate? And then we also have them participate in a prediction market. Uh, in the prediction markets, there were actually 21 prediction markets uh, for the 21 studies. And in this market, uh, our participants started with uh, some amount of money and they could buy and sell stocks for the different uh, experiments. Now, every stock at the end of the study would give them 100 cents if the study replicates well and zero cents if it doesn't replicate. All of the stock's prices started at 50 cents and then the prices had, uh, slightly changed as a function of people's beliefs on whether they will replicate or not. And at the end of the study, we looked at these final prices of the stocks, 
where uh, when a, a high price of a stock implies that the market thought that the stocks that the experiments would more likely replicate and these uh, prices very closely matched the results of the experiments in fact none of the studies for which the closing price was lower than 50% or 50 cents replicated and only three studies that had higher than 50% uh, could not replicate uh, which show that people did know what studies will replicate beforehand before we even run the studies and that's great news it tells us that there are scientists that have the capacity to tell apart things that replicate and things that do not and uh, i think uh, some of the takeaways uh, that we have and also uh, it relates to our future work is to find what are these properties of these studies that predict whether the study will replicate or not it's very clear that the sample size and the p value which is uh, some uh, statistics that represents the strength of statistical evidence of the data are uh, very important so it seems like studies that had small samples and high p value uh, were less likely to replicate and the people could uh, rely on it uh, it seems like uh, many times also uh, the strength of the theory uh, is also a predictor for example uh, in the case of the rodan uh, study that i mentioned earlier in order for this to work you need several things to happen there are several inductive leaps that take place first of all looking at the picture of the study of rodan should make you more analytical and then this should have an influence on religious belief there are two things that need to happen i'm not sure that even the first of those Uh, really happens and if it does whether this the strength of this even first effect is sufficiently strong uh, in order to uh, generate an effect in a study of 40 participants uh, as was the original study of that um, from a practical angle i think we should expect uh, effects in replication studies to be smaller than original ones so if one wants to replicate an original study i would definitely recommend not to calculate the sample size based on the effect of the original study but uh, at least to have sufficient amount of participants to detect uh, 75% of the original effect uh, i think this is also a lesson we can uh, uh, generalize to the previous replication projects uh, i participated in one project uh, that aimed to replicate studies in uh, economics and uh, there were previous studies in psychology these uh, studies had a uh, large samples that were uh, but the samples were calibrated in order to detect the original effects and because of that it's very possible that they failed to replicate uh, findings because they could not detect effects that are smaller than that uh, as we now know one should expect and so this is going to probably help to change some of the guidelines for these studies perhaps Uh, do you think it's going to change how larger journals and high-profile journals like Nature and Science actually accept papers? I think it will, and I think it already has. Uh, if we look uh, in the studies that uh, we replicated, uh, actually all of the studies that failed to replicate were between the years 2010 and 2013. So from the last two years of the studies that we selected, everything replicated. Uh, these are only four studies, so I'm not going to make uh, bold claims like everything now replicates, but it's very clear that there were changes in uh, journal policies. Uh, this is uh, especially true for psychology journals where now uh, one has to share the data, share the analysis scripts, 
you get a special badge recognizing when you pre-registered the study. Uh, pre-registration is a very important thing. Uh, pre-registration is basically committing to an analysis plan, the number of participants that you will uh, run and how you will analyze the data before you do so. Uh, when you do so, you limit uh, the amount of bias that your own decisions when analyzing the data can induce. Uh, there were previous uh, studies conducted actually mostly here at Wharton uh, by people from the OID department, Joe Simmons and Uri Simonson, uh, showing that uh, when you have some flexibility in the analysis, you are very likely to find results that are uh, statistically significant but uh, do not re reflect true effects. And by pre-registering uh, pre one's uh, study, he or she ties uh, her own hands before collecting the data and that allows to uh, generate results that are more robust and replicable. So, so what's the next step in your own research? Well, uh, with relation to the replicability, uh, we are now uh, looking at uh, what made people predict so well uh, whether studies replicate or not. Uh, one of the things uh, that we've done uh, was also... Uh, <clears throat> try to use machine learning in order to go over uh, papers, uh, use features of the papers, such as the statistics from the papers, uh, the p-value, the sample size, but also even the actual text of the papers and some information we have about the authors and see whether uh, an algorithm can predict, as well as the humans, whether uh, studies will replicate or not. Uh, for this specific one, the algorithm actually did pretty well. Uh, and it can detect replicability in something like 80% of the cases, which is not bad at all. Uh, so we are working on uh, automating uh, this process. Um, and this is one uh, line of research that uh, I'm uh, personally involved in. Uh, other things is uh, just uh, continue to replicate. I think that the replicability should not ever stop. It uh, should be an integral part of uh, the scientific process. We have uh, neglected it uh, maybe for some time. Uh, maybe it was because uh, people were perceived as uh, maybe belligerent or aggressive if they tried to challenge other people's views. But when you really think of it, this is the way science has progressed along for many years. And if a study uh, doesn't replicate, uh, you'd better know it before uh, building on it and uh, standing on the shoulders of the researchers that conducted it. Uh, I can give an example. Uh, the study, the Rodan study that uh, I just described, had uh, about 400 citations in as little as four years. Uh, and uh, there were studies with even way more citations. Uh, this is science and nature. These papers have high impact on many disciplines uh, and uh, they are accepted based on their potential impact. So these are the results are important, uh, and I think we should keep replicating findings and that researchers that uh, submit papers to these journals and editors should be aware of the fact that uh, they will very likely generate an impact that if these results are not replicable could lead to a lot of waste of researchers, of people's times, of people's careers, and of public money that is used to generate uh, additional studies based on the original result. Well, I'm looking forward to reading more about this from you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Steve. It's been a very nice interview. If you want to read more about research by Gideon Nave or other Wharton faculty, visit us at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 
You can also find us on your favorite podcasting app. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.